0: sound till he appears, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. One with the Father, ancient of days, through the Spirit who clothes faith with service,
1: pastor I used to listen to on the radio said, uh, amen, amen, and amen. Sometimes one's not enough. Praise the Lord for his goodness. Let's, um, let's bow in prayer together, please. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the marvel of the resurrection, for its power in our lives, for its testimony of what you have done in accepting the sacrifice for our sins. Father, as we open your scripture now, we ask you to give us insight into your word, to help us to understand and to apply what we learn from your scripture today. Give us ready hearts and ready minds. Give us energy with which to focus. Help us, Lord, to hear from you as you teach us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for hundreds of years, this has been a day of great celebration for the church, This is Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday, the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead after the Sabbath. But we celebrate it in particular on one Sunday in the spring that corresponds with the exact time that he rose. And in bright and easy times, this has been a day for celebrating outdoors, if the weather permits, for wearing a, a new outfit, particularly for the young ladies, a new dress, often with a bonnet when I was a little guy, or a hat with family pictures and joyful worship services in which all sorts of family come from all around. In darker times, this day has been an important day to remember that our victory is already won even if the enjoyment of that victory is delayed until after this life is over. I mean, ultimately, what we celebrate has much more to do with eternity than it has to do with the present world, much more to do with our standing with God than our standing in this world. So whatever kind of year you're having, whatever kind of day you're having, this is a day to celebrate what the Lord has done It's been a day of great importance to the church over the centuries, and today should be no different. We do recognize that it's somewhat ironic that our our greatest victory would be achieved through the ultimate in weakness. It is so, however. People generally don't expect victory to come about in any way except through observable strength. They don't expect it to come about through The ultimate in weakness, our great and eternal victory, though, came to us specifically by the suffering and death of the one who had known no sin. After we understand God's power in using weakness to accomplish his purposes, Jesus' suffering starts to make sense to us. And and it adds even more glory to what he has done. God is not a God who has to have everything just so for him to receive glory. Some people think that. You know, wouldn't God be great if he does this thing I want him to do? Wouldn't God be great if so-and-so gets well? Wouldn't God be great if this cancer is conquered? Wouldn't God be great if I got my bonus this year? No, God is great. No matter what happens, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest of all reminders that God is glorified in the hard things, and that's his purpose for it to be so. So today we're going to consider the weakness and the seeming failure that led to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, this horrible thing that God used to bring about for us the ultimate victory over sin and death. Now, the main point is the victory, obviously. But we need to understand how God got there, what he accomplished, came about through something that seems absolutely ridiculous and absurd to those who don't know him. I wonder if we, even as believers, can grasp the weakness and shame associated with the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. How far can we go in fathoming what Jesus did and how far he descended in order to accomplish our salvation for us? It's hard even to grasp the human portion of that descent. Setting aside for a moment the far more significant part where Jesus left the glory of heaven where he was worshipped as God and became a human being and limited himself to to a finite body and all that comes with that, leaving that aside, and that is by far the greater part of the descent, to take on the, the limitations of humanity the deprivations that come with this package that is humanity. Set all of that aside. And just take Jesus as fully man, how far he had to descend to get to the cross. He had been the most popular teacher ever to exist in Israel. He Even put John the Baptist in the shadows to the point that John's disciples were upset that their their day was passing away. John explained that it had to be so; he was that popular, nobody had been as popular as John and then Jesus put John completely in the background. His popularity was so extreme. multitudes followed him everywhere he went. Jesus had to work hard just to find time with his disciples to teach them without distraction. His popularity was such that that he had to take the disciples into lonely places just to get the time he needed to teach them in a focused way. At least once he took them completely out of the country in an attempt to have a little focused time together. He was still recognized. The people in this country still demanded something. That's where he He had to cast out a demon. He met a mother who wouldn't leave him alone. People followed him and flocked around him because of the incredible power that he routinely displayed. He healed every disease and sickness. That's the language Scripture uses, every disease and sickness. He could heal anything, and he did. He cast out demons. He fed thousands of people just generating food on the spot in an, agriculture econo- an agricultural economy when you know how easy it would be to starve. That makes more of an impression than it does on us who have everything available at the grocery store. If stuff doesn't grow, you starve. Here's a guy who can take a few fish and a couple of pieces of bread and feed 5,000 men plus the women and children. Can you imagine the power just to do that? And Jesus even raised people from the dead. You've probably had some health struggles. Maybe you have not yet, but you know people who have had them, and how difficult they can be and how tenacious health problems can be. Can you even fathom the power to solve a health problem after the patient has died? That's the power Jesus had, raising people from the dead. People were following him because he could do those things, and they had an agenda. They they wanted Jesus to become their king. They thought if he's got that kind of power, he can overthrow Rome, and he can put Israel back at the top of the pecking order, as it should be, they thought. He was going to usher in, in their minds, a new era of Jewish dominance independence. Jesus carefully avoided anything that would encourage that, but that's how people were thinking. It was just not his purpose to be an earthly king. He was aiming much higher. So with all of that in mind, let's read our passage for today. It's Mark 15 verses 22 to 39. Mark chapter 15 verses 22 to 39. This is Mark's account of the crucifixion event. This is how low Jesus descended from those heights of popularity. This is after the illegal illegal trial before the Jews, after Pilate declared him innocent and then condemned him to die. It says, beginning on verse 22, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each man would take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Then the sixth hour came, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So Jesus had been immensely popular, more than we can imagine, in terms of popularity. And now he's being nailed to a cross, to be executed as if he were the very worst among criminals. The charge against him at his illegal trial was that of blasphemy, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Never mind that he had proven his power over and over again, The crime, they said, was worthy of death, despite all of that. Before Pilate, the Jews changed the charge to that of treason because they knew Pilate wouldn't execute anyone for blasphemy according to Jewish law, even if Jesus were guilty. So they were implying treason when they said, this guy claims to be a king. Now, such a claim in itself is harmless, and that's how the Romans saw it. Unless you took up arms against Rome, didn't, they didn't care what you called yourself. They even had some politicians who were using that title, King Herod among them. He wasn't a king. He was just using the title. The only king was Caesar. But Caesar didn't care what they called themselves. And everyone knew Jesus had not led an insurrection. He's innocent of any any crime. Everybody knew it. Pilate declared it repeatedly right before he condemned him. After Pilate's capitulation, he tried to regain some of his dignity and kind of take a shot at the Jews who had put him in this awkward situation. And so the inscription on Jesus' cross read, the King of the Jews. That's where they put the crime. He's being killed because he's the king of the Jews. They argued with him about it. Pilate would not change it. He seemed to think that he had taken an important moral stand in having that wording on the cross. Never mind that you participated in the murder plot. You're drawing a line here. Even the two robbers being crucified with him were hurling abuse at him. Passersby are seeing this scene and mocking him openly, saying he should use his great power to come down. And then when he didn't come down, thinking that they're right to mock him. Even the Jewish religious leaders are joining in the mocking. Now, they were too dignified, too proud to shout out like the, the the little people were doing. They were keeping it in their little circle, mocking among themselves, suggesting that he should come down if he's the Christ, coming out in person. Can you imagine this? The 70 most influential men in the country— coming out in person to an execution in order to gloat and mock and rejoice in the death of that man on the cross. Well, that's not what victory usually looks like. Everything seems to be going the way of Jesus' enemies. Now, there was one significant hint that things might not have been as they thought. At noon, you know that's the, the Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That's 9 a.m. That tells you how fast that Roman trial went. They've already got him on the cross at 9 a.m. And then at noon, it went dark, and it was dark from noon to three. The brightest part of the day normally. That might have served as a wake-up call to some people that something's going on here. This is unusual. I don't know if you've been through it, but it's strange enough to go through a full solar eclipse, knowing what's coming, having watched the moon begin to obscure more and more of the sun. It is still as strange as can be when that last bit of the sun is gone and it's dark in the middle of the day. Kind of, kind of some weird feeling. You know, imagine the sensations you might experience if there's not an eclipse. And you haven't watched the moon begin to move into place so that the sun will, will not be able to shine right into uh, our eyes. And it still goes dark at noon in the Mediterranean. And it stays dark from noon to three. What do you think? Would you be afraid? Would you think what's going on? Well, apparently it didn't occur to any of Jesus' adversaries that God might be making a statement and they ought to rethink their position. Maybe they thought the unnatural darkness was God affirming the verdict. I don't know, but it's weird. Dark from noon to three. This is why the centurion was right there. it got dark. You better be close. You're guarding this man. Then at three o'clock. Which was precisely the moment called for in the Old Testament law for the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The very first of that series of sacrifices was to start at three. At that very moment, Jesus cried out these words, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, which in English is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it still doesn't sound like victory. It actually sounds like a man in despair. If you just know those words and you don't have any context from having been Jewish or having studied the Scripture in detail, it sounds like the cry of a man who has lost all hope and maybe is accusing God of getting it wrong. It shouldn't be this way. Why? Why? Are you doing this? Where is the God I've believed in? Now, it sounds that way without the context we'll have in a moment because that's what our why usually means when we ask. God, you're getting this wrong. You need to explain some things to me. And since I know there's not a good explanation, because I've thought about this, once you realize that, you're going to change my situation. That's what we usually mean when we ask why. And some have concluded that this cry from the cross was a sign that Jesus was without hope. He had reached the point of utter hopelessness, that this was despair, that he had come to the point of believing that everything was lost. Now let me be quick to point out that though that conclusion has sometimes been popular, it represents a terrible misunderstanding of the text. It's easy enough to realize why someone would think that way if, if these words are all they understand. But that's not all there is. That's not all that his first listeners would even have heard. Because the hard reality, or the, the wonderful reality, is that these words are a declaration of victory not of defeat. Jesus was far from defeat. He was not questioning God's goodness. He was not questioning God's wisdom. He was not in utter anguish as though God had left him nothing to cling to. He was not crying out as one who has lost confidence in God or in his own relationship with God. This cry from the cross, this particular one, is a quote from the Old Testament. It's specifically... Psalm 22, the first part of verse 1, the very beginning of Psalm 22. The first words of the song is what he started to say from the cross. Now, when you quote something that is familiar to your listeners, the way the human mind works is the whole package instantly comes into the mind of the person who knows the quote. We have great fun with this at my house. Movie lines that are hilarious. You just started. Everybody in the house just laughs because, yep, you got it. But it works that way for everybody. If you hear the words, you're hurrying to get to the church for the covered dish lunch that you're late for, and you're walking in, and everybody's sitting down, so you sit down, and you hear the words, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. You already know this is not the covered dish you meant to get to. (laughs) That's all you need. You've you got the whole context when you hear those words. If somebody says, four score and seven years ago, now Heather was doing it right after four score. She already was finishing it over there. You might not know the whole speech, but you know where that's from. The quote instantly brings the whole context to your mind. You may even have a, a visual picture of old Abe and that scraggly beard he had. We, the people of, in the beginning, God, you see how it works. If I say to you, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and you're familiar with the 23rd Psalm, you're already Thinking about green pastures and still waters and the valley of the shadow of death and a table prepared before me in the presence of my enemies and eternity in glory with God. All in that one brief psalm. The whole thing comes just like that. That's how it works. And the phenomenon is even stronger if it's a song. Take me out to the ball game. It even works for that one. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Well, in quoting the first line of Psalm 22, Jesus was calling to mind a song that his listeners all knew and had sung lots of times. It was part of the Hebrew worship to sing that song. And for those listeners, the whole song would have come to mind immediately, and it is a song of victory, not of defeat. Oh, it begins with anguish and suffering, and it pulls no punches about how hard the anguish and the suffering can be. But ultimately, it's a song of purpose. It's a song of hope. It's a song of victory. And because God inspired the whole of Scripture, Psalm 22 stands as an astoundingly accurate account of the crucifixion scene, even quoting the mocking correctly. The exact things they were saying penned about a thousand years before the event. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. David lived roughly a thousand years B.C. We don't know which part of his life he wrote this in, but it's probably a little more than a thousand years before the crucifixion. And it's a great description with impressive detail of the crucifixion. Verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 22 say, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And doctors tell us that's exactly the sensations that a crucifixion victim would have endured. Here's what it says about the mocking that was going on while Jesus hung on the cross. Verses 7 and 8 of that psalm, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads, saying... He commits himself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Verses 16 and 18 of Psalm 16 to 18. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. All of that and more written a thousand years plus before the crucifixion. You should read that in your devotion this week. Psalm 22. Jesus just quotes the first verse. But by doing that, he's calling to mind the whole psalm, which is a psalm of deliverance. My God, my God, why... Have you forsaken me? The mocking applied, the piercing of hands and feet applied. The forsaking applies in a sense. It doesn't mean that God had completely turned away from Jesus. He's still calling him my God. That was repeated for emphasis. That pronoun is important. My God, my God. Still. Still. And yet there's a very real sense in which Jesus was forsaken as the Father put his wrath on the Son. It was wrath for all of the sins committed by all of the people who would trust him. And God poured out that wrath and quenched it on Jesus. Jesus is crying out and this psalm is a reminder that this incredible event took place because God had to deal with sin in order to save anyone. It all happened because humanity's self-centered rebellion against God had to be paid for. We tend to take sin lightly as if It's not that big a deal. Everybody else messes up too. We don't think about how holy God is, how much he hates sin, how much he will not tolerate, even a little. And that's why Jesus was forsaken on the cross, so that those sins could be paid, so that God's wrath could be extinguished, so they would not be applied to the sinner in hell forever. And as Jesus hung on that cross, God worked a miracle. He did something only He could do. He took all of the sins of all of the people who would ever believe in all of time, the ones before the cross, the ones after the cross, the ones yet to be born. He took all of the sins of all of the believers in all of time, and He punished those sins in His Son so those sins would not have to be punished in the sinner in hell forever. For those who trust Christ, those sins are gone forever. God knew who it would be. He already knew them before He made them. He miraculously placed our sins on His Son, and the Son made full payment on our behalf. People think God is just going to brush sin aside. They don't understand God at all. They also don't understand how serious sin is. He won't brush it aside, He's going to punish every sin. You want yours to have been punished in Christ on the cross, not in you in eternity. It'll be one of those two. That's what was happening on the cross. Jesus was bearing the weight of all of those sins. He was not in despair. This is what he came to do. He had not lost hope. He was accomplishing his purpose. He was just doing the hardest thing, and that was hard. He cries out in an appropriate way, and yet as he did so, he's claiming victory. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 reminds us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Every other religion insists on the impossible. They try to Make it look like it'll be easier. It'll be a better deal. You can keep your pride. What you're told to do is just work your own way to heaven or work real hard so he'll be impressed enough that he'll combine your work with his work and you can get into heaven. But salvation is a work that only God can do. And he did it in Christ. And anyone who tries to do it any other way is an offense to him. If you think you're going to join your merit with the merit of Christ... You're going to be rejected for that sinful idea that is a rejection of the gospel. It's Christ alone. He paid it all. That's what we see God doing at the cross. Well, the unnatural darkness was a strong hint that there was something more going on. But what happened next is a very clear declaration that things had changed forever. In our text in Mark, verses 37 and 38, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now we know from other gospel accounts that loud cry was the Greek word tetelestai, which means it has been paid in full. That word was stamped on a bill when it was paid, so you had evidence that you had paid it in full. It means... It has been paid in full. That was what he claimed in his last breath before he died. And then the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the veil of the temple was a dividing curtain between the people and that part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. It had existed when it was just a tent, and it still existed when there were hard walls on the temple No one was allowed to go in the Holy of Holies except for the high priest. He could go in once a year after an elaborate cleansing ritual. But the guy had to go in with a rope tied around one ankle because you go into the presence of God, even symbolically in the Holy of Holies. If there's anything wrong, he will kill you. And there was a very real danger that the high priest was gonna go in with a flippant attitude or some unconfessed sin and be struck dead, and then you can't get him out, unless you tied the rope on before he went in, because nobody else can go in and get him without being struck dead, because you can't be a sinner in the presence of God and survive. And so the rope was so they could drive the poor man's drag the poor man's carcass out under the curtain now this is kind of obscure to us but to any jew who had worshiped in jerusalem this was a vivid image of what you cannot do you cannot approach god you will not be welcomed you will die people could not come into the presence of god and live and the veil of the temple was a constant reminder of that problem It was a terrible statement regarding this inevitable separation between God and sinful people. People have no right to be in the presence of God, and they have no ability to be in the presence of God and survive. That's what that veil was about. It was a tangible picture of that reality. Now, people all over the world, in every culture, have a tendency to assume that they're okay with God. Most of the time, people think of God as some sort of soft-headed grandfather who's going to just look the other way and not consider their sin and shame. They tend to have no concept of God's holiness, no concept of His burning hatred of sin. And so God gave Israel that tangible reminder of how serious sin is. You can't come into his presence. You're not welcome there. You won't even live if you dare go on the other side of that curtain. And then, when Jesus died on the cross, God worked a miracle. Right before the eyes of the high priests and a huge number of worshipers who were in the temple, remember it was 3 o'clock on the day the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The sacrifice has just begun. There are more people in the temple at that moment than any other moment of the year. And suddenly, this heavy curtain separating all of the people from that holy place that you can never see, can never go into, is ripped in two from top to bottom. Up there where nobody can reach without a ladder, it starts and it goes all the way until one curtain becomes two curtains. That can't happen by accident. The wind didn't blow and make that happen. This was a miracle. And it was a graphic demonstration that God had accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on behalf of people. So now people can not only look and see what's in there, they can go into the very presence of God and be welcomed. That's what changed. You can approach God in Jesus Christ and not die. I heard one preacher talking about, you know, we ought to marvel every week. I I came into the congregation, I prayed to the great God of heaven, and I didn't die. The dividing barrier is gone. The symbol of separation has been removed. That's because the separation has been removed in Christ. He alone can take you into the presence of God in a way in which you'll be accepted there and not die, not be condemned to eternal destruction. Jesus can take you where you cannot go without Him. The book of Hebrews makes much of this point. In Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, it says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. They're talking about that curtain in the temple where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Later in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, that's inside the curtain, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. I don't know if we can even conceive of what a, a marvel that would have been to a Jewish convert in the first century. You can draw near. And, and here is... a, a An author writing to all of these Hebrew believers saying, let us draw near. We can go in now. We can go in with confidence. Jesus takes us right into the presence of a holy God where we are welcomed. So here we are on Friday. It's just after three o'clock. The sun is shining again. The curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom. But Jesus is dead. He's actually dead. And they're trying to get the body. And Pilate has to release it because he can't believe the man died that quickly. But then they do get the body released, they get permission, and they hurry Jesus to a grave owned by a man nearby to a tomb so that they can get him underground before sunset when the Sabbath is to begin because you can't do any work on the Sabbath. And so without any other traditional preparations they for the body, they hurry him into the tomb, they get him in there before sunset, and everybody rests on the Sabbath. And it still doesn't look like victory to anybody who is watching. There have been some odd and compelling events, but Jesus is dead. Nobody sees any victory yet. That was Friday, the first day. And then Saturday, the Sabbath, the second day, Jesus rested in the grave. And then on Sunday, the third day, soon as day began to dawn, God demonstrated his acceptance of that sacrifice by raising Jesus to life eternal. Victorious over death, victorious over sin. God was doing exactly what he had said he would do. He had explained it hundreds of years in advance in numerous ways in the Old Testament Scripture. On the cross, Jesus had accomplished salvation for all who would believe. And even though it still looked like failure, the victory was won. God's just doing what He always said He would do. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the hope of the gospel. Jesus died just like God said he would. He died for sin. He was buried, and on the third day he was raised just like God said he would be. That's the gospel that is the central feature of our faith. That's why we celebrate today. That's why we celebrate every Sunday. That's why we celebrate every weekday, if our minds are right. Having won forever the victory over sin for all who would believe, Jesus lives. We serve a risen Savior. He demonstrated his power over the curse of death. He won for us the ultimate victory. If you don't know this Jesus, if you have rejected him until now, if you've foolishly told yourself none of this is real and you're going to be fine without him and you're going to make your own way or there's nothing after this life, today is the day to wake up. You know better than that. If you think that way, you're what was described in Romans 1 of ungodly people suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You're trying to keep the lid on it. You're applying all of your intellect, trying to make yourself believe your position is sustainable, but you know it's a lie. You need to believe him today. You need to trust him, and he will welcome you into his kingdom. Lord Jesus Christ is calling you to repent while there is still time. But you don't know how much time there is. And if you won't repent today, what makes you think you'll repent tomorrow? If you're telling yourself, I'm going to have my fun first, and then I'll repent, when is that going to change? It's very unlikely to change. It's just an excuse for you not to obey. It's a way for you to tell yourself, I'm okay. I'm making good decisions. I don't need a Savior. Repent today. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. And you need to act. Stop your rebellion. Trust the one who died for sin. For the rest of us, we ought to understand we have a great deal to celebrate. What we have to celebrate doesn't have any trappings. It doesn't have a lot of traditions. You know, those are fine. We ought to get together and enjoy our families whenever we have a holiday. But what we have to celebrate centers on Jesus Christ. It doesn't need certain colors. It doesn't need certain activities. If things are great, enjoy the great things. If things are hard, just remember. Our victory is forever. It's already won Our victory centers on Jesus Christ, and it is him we celebrate today and every day. Let's remember what we have to celebrate and give him glory. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take your word and plant it deeply in our hearts. Give us great confidence and joy because of what you have done We glory and rejoice in you and in your goodness. We marvel at your power and wisdom to produce salvation in the way you did so that no human being can brag about anything, but you get all the glory. What a great God who can achieve victory from the ultimate weakness, submitting yourself to death and still winning. Thank you that we can be a part of that. Be glorified in us as we respond to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.